The following sermon is from Grace Church East County. More information about Grace Church is available at gracechurcheast.org. We are going to turn our attention to God's Word, and so I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to talk a little bit about church and God's design for church. So turn with me, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3, and while you're turning there, maybe I can begin by reading something else, something from a little book written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you are probably familiar with that book. It's a classic book about living as a Christian. Um, It was written in kind of a memorable way. It's an imaginative piece of fiction written as if it is a correspondence between two demons, kind of a senior demon and kind of a junior demon, if you will. And these demons are trying to prevent their patient um, from making progress in following the one that they call the enemy. Uh, The one they call the enemy is the one that we Christians call the Lord, right? And early in this correspondence, the patient begins attending church for the first time, and there's a fascinating letter in which the senior demon writes to the junior demon about church. I wonder what you think a demon would say to another demon about church. Well, here's one imaginative representation of that. My dear Wormwood, Screwtape always begins, and here's what he says about church. He says, one of our greatest allies at present is the church itself. Then he goes on to qualify. Don't misunderstand me. I don't mean the church as we see her, spread through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. All your patience sees is the half-finished sham Gothic structure on the new building estate. And when he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him one shiny little book, which neither of them understands, and one shabby little book containing corrupt texts of a number of religious songs, mostly bad and in very small print. He didn't even know about the lyric sheets that were handed out today when he wrote that, I promise. And when he gets into his pew, he looks around and sees just that selection of neighbors whom he has hitherto avoided. The demon goes on, you want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind go to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces in the next pew. And it matters very little, of course, what kind of people that next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter, your patient, thanks to our father below, is a fool. Provided that any one of those neighbors sing out of tune or have odd clothing, the patient will quite easily believe that their religion must therefore be somehow ridiculous. Work hard then on the disappointment which is certainly coming to the patient during his first few weeks as a churchman, your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. Now, this fictional section from the Screwtape Letters helps us see something important. 
It helps us see that a great problem facing churchgoers like us today is that we do not see the church for what it truly is. Now listen, I understand that we all have reasons to feel disappointed with our experience of church. All of us do. And some of us have more trivial reasons to feel disappointed with our experience of church, like we don't like the style of worship or something like that. And others of us will have much more serious reasons to feel disappointed with our experience of church. Maybe you've been hurt by church leaders in the past. That's real. Maybe you've seen ugly divisions in the church. Or maybe you've encountered church-going people who are terribly judgmental and cliquish. Listen, I know from personal experience that we all have legitimate reasons to feel disappointed with our experience of church. But as the enemy wants to lean on those feelings of disappointment, I wonder how well we know the splendor of God's design for the church. You see, without minimizing anybody's experiences and disappointments, without minimizing that, I hope that maybe today God's word, which we are going to hear from, will help us see something beyond our disappointments with the church. I hope that beyond our disappointments with the church, we'll see something more of God's design for the church. See, the church in the city of Ephesus, somewhere around the year 60 or 61 or 62 AD, they also had to deal with this challenge of seeing beyond their disappointments and divisions in order to realize God's design for church. And as we listen into Ephesians chapter three today, we're going to hear what the Apostle Paul wanted to say to them about God's design for church. Let's listen together to Ephesians chapter three, verses one through 13. It begins like this. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, 
this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. May God bless the reading of his word. We'll follow this passage of scripture as it unfolds. And so we'll think a little bit first about the situation facing the church. And then we'll think a little bit about the mystery of the church. And then we'll think about the point for the church. That's how this passage unfolds. We begin with the situation facing the church. And I need to admit, by the way, that this paragraph, might be two paragraphs in your translation, but this paragraph from verse 1 down to verse 13 is very hard to follow. Um, In pretty much any English translation, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 1 ends with a dash, and that's because it's not a full sentence. Paul is writing a letter to this church, probably dictating it out loud with someone writing things down as he's speaking. And it's kind of like he begins to express something in verse one, but mid-sentence he realizes that he needs to explain something else before he finishes that thought, right? And so this sentence that begins in verse one only ends in verse 13. And in between verse one and verse 13, there's this long paragraph of reflection. We might call it theological reflection, which explains the request that he's making in verses 1 and verse 13. In any case, Ephesians 3.1 begins by describing a certain situation facing the church. And the situation, simply put, is this. It looks like the gospel is not winning. That's the situation facing the church. Here's what Paul says in Ephesians 3.1. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. So what is going on with Paul when he writes this letter? He's imprisoned. He also mentions his imprisonment a little later in the book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1, and he mentions his chains 
in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 20. But why is he imprisoned? Why does he have chains? Well, you probably know he is not imprisoned for something like murder or sedition. You probably know he's not in prison for refusing to pay taxes to the empire or something like that. Why, though, is he in prison? If you have taught Sunday school before or if you have been to Sunday school and heard about Paul's imprisonment, you probably know the Sunday school answer, which is to say that Paul is in prison because of the gospel. When that's true enough, but like a lot of Sunday school answers, there's probably something more that we should explain about that. You see, Paul is not in prison simply for doing the simplest kind of evangelism with the gospel or something like that. Why is Paul in prison? He is in prison because he has been preaching a revolutionary message that through faith in Jesus Christ, People from other cultures are fully included in the family of God. Acts 21 tells us how Paul came to be imprisoned before he wrote this letter. It tells us how Paul was traveling to Jerusalem after a missionary journey that included time with the Ephesians and Christians from Ephesus. The Ephesians, that is the people from Ephesus, they lived in the Roman province of Asia. Today, uh, Ephesus would be a part of the nation of Turkey. And Paul was a Jewish man. Saul of Tarsus was the name he had gone by when he was young. He was raised in Jewish culture. And to Jewish eyes, That is to say, to the eyes of all the people in the culture that Paul grew up in, right? The people from Ephesus, those Asians, they were known as Gentiles. The word Gentile is a Jewish term that refers to people from any other ethnicity. It's a Jewish term that refers to people from any other cultural background, to anybody who is not Jewish. And so as Paul travels back to Jerusalem, he is accompanied by a traveling companion, according to Acts chapter 21. And this traveling companion was an Asian brother named Trophimus, specifically from the city of Ephesus. And when Paul arrived in Jerusalem, along with the Asian brother from Ephesus named Trophimus, it created immediately a little bit of a stir. Trophimus was immediately treated with suspicion in Jerusalem. Why? Because he was one of them. He was a Gentile. Eventually, Paul goes into the temple in Jerusalem for worship, and that's when things start to go crazy. That's when things get out of hand, Here's how the book of Acts describes Paul's arrest. I think it will show up on the screen over here. Some of the Jewish folks were saying, men of Israel, help us. This, Paul, is the man who preaches against our people everywhere and tells everybody to disobey the Jewish laws. Now, is that quite accurate? No, it's not quite accurate, but it's what some of his fellow Jewish people were saying about him, right? And then they go on. He speaks against the temple and even defiles this holy place by bringing in a Gentile. 
For earlier that day, they had seen him in the city with Trophimus, a Gentile from Ephesus, and they assumed Paul had taken him into the temple. The whole city was rocked by these accusations, and a great riot followed. Paul was grabbed and dragged out of the temple, and immediately the gates were closed behind him. As they were trying to kill him, word reached the commander of the Roman regiment that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And then the commander arrested Paul and ordered him bound with two chains. So, why is Paul imprisoned? It's accurate enough to say he's imprisoned because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, but we should still say something a little bit more specific than that, right? Paul is in prison because his lifestyle communicates a gospel message that says through faith in Jesus Christ, people from other cultures are not just sort of included and not just included, but in a different category, but people from other cultures are fully included in the family of God. Willingly being associated with the Asian brother Trophimus from Ephesus is what got Paul arrested. So back here in Ephesians chapter three, verse one, When Paul says that he is imprisoned because of the gospel of Christ Jesus and because of you Gentiles, he's not joking. He's not exaggerating. He's saying something that came, I'm sure, with some real gravity. And can we take a moment and just imagine the effect on the Ephesian believers as this sinks in. I mean, they know that just being associated with an Asian brother got Paul imprisoned. So if you're there in Ephesus, imagine the feelings that go with that. I mean, not many of us could really claim ethnically to be Jewish. So as a congregation of people here today, mostly Gentiles in California, maybe we feel some solidarity with Trophimus and the church back in Ephesus that sent him out. The gatekeepers of the Lord's temple in Jerusalem believe that people like us don't belong. And that kind of thing is hard to shake. And then there's the result for Paul himself. He is in chains. He is imprisoned because of the guy that the Ephesian church sent along with him as a traveling companion. And so if we want to summarize, we could summarize like this. In this moment, it looks like the gospel is not winning. In this moment, it looks like the world and the ethnic divisions of the world are more powerful than the gospel. In this moment, it looks maybe like this idea that Paul has of a multicultural church. Maybe this idea of a multicultural church is more difficulty than it's worth. 
See, in the early church, being a part of a church family along with people from other cultures and other backgrounds, it was very challenging and sometimes it was even costly. And that raises a question that we still have to face in the church in America today. Is it worth it? Is it worth it even when it looks like the gospel is not winning? Well, that's the situation facing the church mentioned in verse one. It looks like the gospel is not winning right now. It looks like Paul's vision for the church is losing and being beat by the empire. So where will we go when it looks like the gospel is not winning? Where do we go when it looks like the New Testament vision for the church isn't working out so good in our culture today? Where do we go? Paul leads this church, Paul leads us, He leads Christians facing disappointments in the church into a theological reflection about God's design for the church in verses 2 through 12. Paul moves from the situation facing the church with a dash. He goes from the situation facing the church to a reflection on the mystery of the church. And I don't know if you noticed that word, mystery, repeated several times throughout this passage. Ephesians 3.3, the mystery was made known to me by revelation. Ephesians 3.4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. And by the way, as Paul mentions my insight, he's not saying this to create a bigger view of himself. He's quite clear in this passage. Of all the people who have ever represented the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm the least of all of them. He doesn't have an inflated view of himself, but what he's talking about in Ephesians 3, 9 is this this mission to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. So we need to think a little bit along with the New Testament about the mystery that the church is. Now, in order to understand this, we need to figure out a few things. First of all, what kind of mystery are we talking about? I think a good way to describe it, a helpful way, is to say that Paul uses the word mystery ever so slightly differently than the way that we use the word mystery. Paul was writing in the Greek language 2,000 years ago, and what he meant by this word mysterion, what he meant by mystery is ever so slightly different. And the difference is this. I think, in a, I think that as English-speaking Americans, when we think of a mystery, we tend to think of, let's say, the first three quarters of a mystery novel. We think of that part of a mystery story when all of the puzzle pieces are out there on the table, but it's not yet clear how all of those puzzle pieces fit together, right? That's what we think of when we think of a mystery. It was a little different when Paul thought of a mysterion. When Paul uses the word mystery, he's referring to the last chapter of the mystery novel as all of those puzzle pieces have come together and suddenly you say in a gasp of wonder, of course, 
It was there all along, but I just didn't see it until now. That's what Paul means when he uses the word mystery. He's leading us to marvel at the wisdom of the one who was able to bring together all of these puzzle pieces that no one else had been able to put together previously. The New Testament scholars tend to say that Paul's word mystery refers to something that was once concealed, but now fully revealed in Jesus Christ. The next question then, what is this mystery which was once concealed and now revealed? What is this picture that comes together as all of these puzzle pieces now fit together? The mystery is defined by Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. Look with me, if you would, at that verse. Paul just defines the mystery like this. He says, this, excuse me, this mystery is that the Gentiles, what does that word mean? People from all the other cultures. People from all the other ethnic groups, right? He says, the mystery is that the Gentiles, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same, the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. You see, in a world full of ethnic division, in a world in which Gentiles were excluded from the Lord's temple by the gatekeepers of the Lord's temple, in such a world, Paul makes this bold claim about God's plan. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, in the previous paragraph, Paul described it like this. He says, Christ Jesus has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that has existed between people across the ages. Christ has torn it down. And even though we live in a world today in which people keep rebuilding dividing walls of hostility, Paul says that this is the great mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus, God is creating a diverse but unified people. Why do I say it's diverse? Because in verse six, he describes it by saying the mystery is that the Gentiles, all of them, that's diversity. But why do I say it's unified? Because all of those people from all of those various cultural backgrounds are fellow heirs together in one body. This New Testament idea is picked up later on in the vision of John in Revelation chapter 5. A vision of heaven when people from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's diversity. Heaven doesn't lose track of cultural backgrounds. Heaven doesn't ignore people's cultural histories. But people from every language and people and tribe and language are now unified in what? In saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain. For by your blood, you have purchased people from every nation. This is the New Testament's vision of the mystery that was long concealed, and it was long concealed. Even if we just think of the history of redemption as it's described in the Old Testament, 
There were clues. There were puzzle pieces all along. Exhibit A, the promise made to Abraham that through him, every people of the planet, every cultural group in the world, every nation, every family on earth would be blessed through him. That's just exhibit A. But all along there were these clues and these puzzle pieces, but we wondered how does this all fit together? And finally, Saul of Tarsus discovered how it all fits together when he met the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is able to break down the dividing walls of hostility and make us, with all of our diversity, one with him. Now, why? Why did he do that? Is to demonstrate his wisdom. I'm going to say something here, but it's going to be a little bit of a tangent. You're just going to have to stick with me because I'm on vacation, so... Um, some of you uh, have heard of Rain Wilson, perhaps. You know who this is? Uh, he's one of the greatest actors of all time. He played the, <laughs> right? Right? Played the part of Dwight Schrute in um, the American version of the comedy The Office, right? And, um, and, and Rain Wilson made some splashes recently, apparently, because he did an interview um, about, uh, about various things, including Christianity in the world today. And I, I don't know what makes him an expert about Christianity in the world today. I have no idea. But he made some splashes because during this interview, here's what Rain Wilson said. He said about the early church, never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people been gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than in the early Christian church. Now, when I heard that, I thought, I'm not used to hearing great insights from that voice or that face, right? And I wondered to myself, I don't know what his faith commitments are. I, don't, I didn't know that he even had a positive view of Christianity before that. I, I never guessed that he was so interested in history. That was my first bucket of thoughts. But my next thought was, that's well said. I mean, when in the entire history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered together and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than when the church of Jesus Christ began multiplying and spreading throughout Asia and Africa and Europe in the early first century? That was the genius of the early church, if you will. It was the genius, the mystery, how the puzzle pieces were finally coming together and God's plan of redemption was finally being displayed in such a way that we could step back and say, I see it now. That was the genius of the early church, what Paul describes as the mystery that was hidden for ages, but now revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And why did God reveal it this way? Why? We can answer that in a couple of ways. First of all, we need to say that God designed this this plan this way for his own glory. And he says that in this passage in kind of a mind-exploding way. 
Um, do you know on your phone when you're texting, you get emojis? And um, one of my favorite emojis is the guy with the eyeglass, with the eyebrow raise. This is one of my personal favorites. Um, but then another of my favorites is the one with the dude whose head explodes, right? And um, you, know, you know what I'm talking about? Exploding head emoji. And here's what I want to suggest to you. Future translators of the New Testament might need to put an exploding head emoji in their translation of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 9. It's implied they just didn't have access to such tools in the original Greek. That's what I would suggest to you. But, but look with me at what it says in Ephesians 3, 9. Paul says in verse 8, To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, all the people from all different cultures, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And then here it is in verse 10, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, that word manifold means multicolored in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, um, is the word that's used for Joseph's technicolor dream coat. That the manifold technicolor wisdom of God, no longer in 1950s fuzzy black and white, but the wisdom of God in 4K OLED, right? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Exploding head emoji. I don't think it comes as the greatest surprise to us if we suggest that God's design for the church is something for our good. But when we stop and we think about the mess that the church is around the world and across the ages, can you believe that this is God's plan A for displaying his glory, not only on the stage of history and earthly history, but on the stage of eternity and the cosmic display of his glory before angelic creatures? This is God's plan A for describing to the angelic beings how glorious his wisdom is, and he doesn't even have a plan B. Why has God designed this mystery of people from every cultural background being unified together in Jesus Christ for his own glory? to display his 4K OLED wisdom, to display his wisdom in that kind of color and clarity and brilliance on a cosmic and eternal scale, something that we don't even fully comprehend. And yet he does this not only for his glory, he does this also for our good. Look with me, if you would, briefly at uh, at verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we, now by the way, pause one second, original version of this, Paul is writing to you Gentiles. And he says, in Jesus, we together. 
Remember, Paul is writing to a church that knows and understands and grasps this idea that the gatekeepers of the Lord's temple in their day said, y'all don't belong. But Paul writes to the church and says, this is my insight into the glory that is revealed now in Jesus Christ. In a world when the gatekeepers of the Lord's temple keep telling people, you don't belong, you don't belong, you don't belong because of your cultural background, in Christ Jesus, we together, church, we have boldness and full access with confidence through our faith in him. In other words, in a world that keeps saying, you don't belong, you don't belong, you don't belong, the gospel of Jesus Christ says to people from every culture on the planet, you belong in this family. The gospel of Jesus Christ says that through faith in him, no matter how many times other people have told you, people who look or act or dress or speak like you don't belong among us. No matter how many times you've heard that in your life, the gospel of Jesus Christ says to you, in this family, you belong. Why did he do this? The gospel of Jesus Christ is creating this multicultural yet unified church. Why? for the glory of God and for our good. And and what's the point for the church? The point for the church, remember the sentence is kind of chopped up with all of that theological reflection in the middle. And so that sentence that began with, I'm a prisoner on behalf of the gospel of Jesus Christ, on behalf of y'all, it's got to land somewhere. And this is the point for the church in Ephesians chapter three, verse 13. Therefore, I'm asking you, don't lose heart over what I'm suffering. Don't lose heart over the fact that it looks like the, 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 the message of the church isn't winning in today's world. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for y'all Gentiles, which is your glory. Don't lose heart. That's the message that he's spreading. A, a recent poll of people who do polls in America showed some interesting data about people's views of the church. Among our neighbors throughout America today, uh, only about 36% of our neighbors in America have a positive view of the church, according to recent research. That's about one out of three of your neighbors would have a positive view of church. I don't know if that holds true in your neighborhood, but that might even feel high in mine. About one out of three of our neighbors in America have a positive view of the church, but this is the other thing they found that was a little bit surprising. About 71% of Americans have a positive view of Jesus. It's about two out of every three. And our neighbors today, our neighborhoods today are full of people who say, yes, we like Jesus, But no, we don't really like the church, and therefore, more and more of our friends around us are saying, high view of Jesus, low view of the church. As a result, I'm going to conclude, I'd rather not have anything to do with that church stuff, even if I'm interested in Jesus. They they say, I've got a positive view of Jesus, a low view of the church, and therefore, when it comes to being a part of a church, 
I'd rather not. No, thank you. And what would we say to neighbors like that? When I have opportunities to interact with neighbors who say, I've got a high view of Jesus, but I've got my beef with the church. I want to listen a lot. I want to understand. I want to hear where they're coming from because everybody's story is unique. And just like those of us in this room, a lot of our neighbors have very legitimate reasons to feel disappointed in their experience of church. But after I've listened for a while and understood, usually the conversation for me lands, some, lands on saying something like this, I get your critique, but for my part, I don't follow your conclusion. I get your critique. There are a lot of problems in this messy thing that we call the church. But for my part, I don't follow your conclusion, high view of Jesus, low view of the church, so I'd just rather not. In fact, if we brought the Apostle Paul here today, in light of a lot of the things that he says throughout the book of Ephesians, I think the Apostle Paul would listen to our neighbors and say, yep, I agree with your critiques of the church. And I too have a high view of Jesus. But for my part, I don't follow your conclusion of saying high view of Jesus, low view of church. Therefore, with regard to church, no thanks. In fact, if we were to bring Jesus Christ himself here this morning in a way and stand him on the stage and give him a chance to talk with folks who say, I've got a high view of Jesus, but a low view of the church, and therefore, with respect to participating, I'd rather not. I think Jesus would say with deeper conviction than any one of us ever have, I get your critiques of the church. It's not what it should be. Let me just go and read Revelation chapter two and chapter three if you don't believe me. Jesus has his criticisms of the church. But Jesus, who has his criticisms of the church, does not follow the conclusion that says, therefore, we might as well just give up on the church. Rather, to the opposite, Jesus, who has deeper criticisms of the church than any one of us, chose for his part, instead of giving up on the church, to give his life for the church. Driven and motivated and fueled by love, instead of saying, I've got my criticisms of the church, therefore I'll give up on her, he says, I've got my criticisms of the church and therefore I'll give myself for her. And again and again and again, around the world and across the centuries and again and again and again, month after month and week after week and even today, Jesus is saying, I've got my criticisms of the church, but I'm choosing instead of giving up on her to give myself to her. And given Jesus' heart and given this vision of the mystery of the church that we receive in the New Testament, my appeal to you today is, in fact, to have a very, very, very high view of Jesus Christ, the one who is able to resolve this mystery and bring all the puzzle pieces together from every corner of the planet. And I'm not asking you in the slightest to ignore criticisms or hurts 
or pain related to the church. But on the basis of our Lord Jesus Christ's own heart and on the basis of this vision of what the church is designed to be, on the basis of this vision of God's design for the church, I want to invite you not to give up on the church, but instead, motivated and fueled by love, to give yourself to the church. What is the message for the church here in this passage? Is something like this, don't lose heart. Why? Because the mystery of the church is worth living for, and if necessary, it's even worth suffering for. If you keep reading in the book of Ephesians, you'll see that's exactly what Paul is saying. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. It's hard sometimes, but be eager to live for that vision. Be eager to give and use your gifts for the building up of the whole body of Christ, even though sometimes that feels exhausting. Be imitators of your Father in heaven and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. The mystery of the church of Jesus Christ is worth living for, and if, and if necessary, it's even worth suffering for. Just ask Jesus. Would you join me in praying? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this revelation through the work of your spirit, of the glory of your wisdom, bringing things together in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray that even today, that you would use your word to fuel in us a higher view of Jesus and a deeper willingness in our hearts like Jesus to spend our lives serving his body for which he gave his own life. And I pray for these brothers and sisters here. I pray for myself and for your church around the world. By the work of your spirit, strengthen us so that we will not give up, but spend our lives loving what you yourself dearly love. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church East County. Please find us online at gracechurcheast.org if you would like to find out more about us.